Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of 9 to 5-ish. Today, we've got a guest who's been in the news quite a lot recently, Nikki Haley. She's the former governor of South Carolina and was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations during the Trump administration. Now, she's running against former President Donald Trump for the GOP nomination for president. At The Skim, we've mobilized hundreds of thousands of women to vote. And we've invited President Biden and former President Trump to talk to us. Our goal? To hear directly from the candidates about policy positions that impact us. So in this episode, we're going to talk to Governor Haley not only about her career, but also about her positions on reproductive rights, paid family leave, and more. And we should note, we're speaking to her on Thursday, February 22nd, which is two days before the South Carolina primary, her home state. Hi, Governor Haley. Hi. So, Governor Haley, thank you so much for sitting down with us. As you know, we're the skim. So we like to start off this podcast with a lightning round, which is because we're the skim, we like to get right to it with quick questions, quick answers. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Best part about being on the campaign trail? Being around the people. What is the worst part about being on the campaign trail? Not sleeping in my own bed. Who is the smartest person in Congress? I really, I really have a deep respect for Joni Ernst. She's very, she's good on our issues. She's smart from a national security perspective. She's good on our issues from a domestic. She's got kind of the the whole package. I'm really a big fan of hers. What do you consider your biggest political failure? Wow. I hesitate because, you know, there's there's a lot. You always look back and say, what else could I have done? I think that the biggest political failure, and I don't know that, is that I, I wish I could have done more on education in South Carolina. We did a lot to lift up the rural challenged areas, and we did a lot at expanding choices, and we did a lot in terms of really kind of empowering, but I wish we could have gone further than that. You know, when you see where our kids are now. I just wish we could have done more on that. Okay. The next one is a fun one. You, this is a a hypothetical situation. You have to choose between one of these three people as a running mate. Who are you picking? George Santos, Vivek Ramaswamy, or Matt Gaetz? Stop it. Seriously? You got to choose one. No way. (laughs) Okay. Well, well, we'll let you pass on that one. I mean, that just like blows my mind. You know what I would say? I would say my, my kids would say George Santos. That was, that would definitely be the one that they would say. They find him very funny. Yes. At least there, there would be some entertainment on the trail. Maybe even, (laughs) maybe even on Cameo. What is one word a direct report would use to describe you? Strong. Okay. Normally on the show, we talk to women about the jobs they've had, but obviously it seems more appropriate, given that you are are running for president, to talk about the job you want. And I think anyone who has has watched your campaign, especially in, in the last 24 hours, is seeing this really interesting discrepancy. On one hand, you haven't won a contest yet. On the other hand, you outraised former President Trump in the month of January. Campaigns, someone said that this morning and it made sense. Campaigns don't really end. They just run out of cash. 
what are you seeing that we're not seeing? And what is the long game here? Is it Trump is no longer able to run for either legal or health reasons? B, you cemented your status for a future election or C, at the very least, you know, you've increased dramatically your overall brand recognition. Hey, first of all, it, brand recognition it doesn't matter. It's amazing to me how the pundits even talk about, um, you know, a future political career. That's not anything I think about. That's nothing that I am focused on. If that were the case, I would have been out of this race a long time ago. The, the focus really is looking at the American people. You have 70% of Americans who want something different. 70% of Americans have said they don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. The majority of Americans disapprove of Donald Trump and the majority of Americans disapprove of Joe Biden. They're the two most disliked politicians in America. I'm not saying that the American people are saying that. 60% of Americans think Donald Trump is too old and Joe Biden is too old to be president. What I am saying is we all want to see a change in our country. We all want to see the wasteful spending stop and get our economy back on track. We all want to see our kids reading again and go back to the basics in education. We all want to secure our borders with no more excuses. We all want law and order back in our country. And we all want a world where we prevent war. But none of that is going to happen if we don't win. And there's a Marquette poll that came out this morning. Joe Biden and Donald Trump are even, margin of error. I defeat Joe Biden by 18 points, 18 points. So what I will say is you can look at this primary and do whatever you want in the primary, but don't complain about what happens in a general election if you don't focus on the importance of a primary. In a general election, you're given a choice. In a primary, you make a choice. This is about giving the American people an opportunity for a new generational conservative leader that can put in eight years, not four, that can really work night and day to get things back to where they want to be. And the other side of it is, the reason that I do this is for my kids. I don't want my kids to continue to live like this. I don't want anybody's kids to continue to live like this. Look at what they've been through. You look at what happened with COVID. You look at the fact that they see all this government debt, they wonder how it's going to affect them. They worry about if they're going to be able to buy a home. They worry about what job they're going to get. They worry how they're going to make ends meet. And all of this is happening in a country that is so angry, that hates each other. And then you wonder why there's stress, anxiety, and depression. They deserve better. That's why I'm doing this. It's not about me as much as it's about my kids and the younger generation. I don't want them to be fearful of war. I don't want them to worry about whether they can afford a home. I want them to know the American dream. The average home buyer in America now is 49 years old. We're going to ask you about that in just a minute, but I wanted to talk to you first about a different issue. We're talking to you less than two years after Roe was overturned. The majority of the country believes abortion should be legal in all or most cases. The Alabama Supreme Court just ruled just this past week that embryos are children and a decision that you have said you agree with. This week, the largest I fertil- I agree with the I didn't say I agree with the decision. I said that I think that embryos are treated like babies. I see I personally see embryos as babies. So 
I want to double down on that for a second. At least two Alabama clinics have announced they're pausing IVF services in the wake of this decision. This is happening in real time. Personally, I represent one of the millions of women who every night as I'm undergoing an IVF journey myself right now, I literally thank God every night that this science exists so that hopefully my husband and I can have the family we dream of having. How should I think about what is happening to now fertility clinics, to now IVF, and to the attack on that as we think about our own family? How should my doctors think about that? So can I talk about the abortion side and then go into the IVF yes, side? Because I absolutely. think they need to be connected. I think this is really important. You know, when you talk about pro-life and abortion, these are incredibly personal issues, personal for women and for men. And I strongly believe they need to, need to be treated with the respect of that. I am unapologetically pro-life, not because the party tells me to be, but because my husband was adopted. And I had trouble having both of my children. So prior to 1973, we had 46 state laws that dealt with abortion. And in 1973, when Roe v. Wade happened, they basically said you could have abortion anytime, anywhere, for any reason. I think a wrong was made right when it was taken out of the hands of unelected justices and put in the hands of the people. Now the states have decided. Some states have gone more pro-life. I welcome that. Some states have gone more pro-choice. I wish that wasn't the case, but the people decided, and I respect that. But when it comes to a federal law, which has been what's the debate, the American people need to be told the truth. In order to have a federal law, you have to have a majority. You have to have a majority of the House, sixty Senate votes, and a signature by a president. We haven't had sixty Republican senators in over a hundred years. We might have forty-five pro-life senators. So no Republican president can ban abortions any more than a Democrat president can ban state laws. So what we need to do is find consensus. I think we can all agree to ban late-term abortions. I think we should all encourage adoptions and good quality adoptions. I think a doctor or nurse who doesn't believe in abortion shouldn't have to perform it. I think contraception should be accessible. And I think so no state—hold on one second. No state law should say to a woman who's gotten an abortion— that she's going to jail or she's getting the death penalty. Let's start there. I had a roommate who was raped in college. I wouldn't wish on anyone that they go through what she went through wondering if she was pregnant. Everybody has a story. Let's be respectful of their story. Now let's move to IVF. I would not have my two children had it not been for fertility procedures. So I am. this is very sensitive to me. First of all, I see these embryos as babies. But what is being lost in the conversation that worries me the most? I think that, again, the people need to decide in every state how they're going to handle this. But what I want them to remember is it is very important that you respect the relationship between the parents and the doctor. Because when I was going through this with my physician, we spoke about everything. And when you have embryos, some are viable, some are not. And what we want is the parent should have the most control. The physician and the, and the facility should have respect of every one of those embryos and treat it that way. And we need to make sure that the people who are in charge of this are the parents and the physician, period. Nothing else around that. And I strongly believe we have to have these fertility resources available. I wouldn't have my two children without it. 
And so these are blessings because of that. So let's not go and have these harsh laws that treat this other than the respectful situation it is and take into account every single circumstance that could happen. And that's why I think doctors and parents need to be at the table when it comes to making any decisions on this issue. So I think that, you know, across the board, and and you've said this is why you're running, people are fed up with how politicians are today. and, and I think that you can say that regardless of party, right, everyone wants something different than what we are getting. One of the bigger reasons is that everything you've you've talked about is in a theoretical perspective, right? Yes, it would be great if this was just about families and their doctors. But we all know that's not that's not the case. And it especially has become more complicated in the past year. You are talking and and politicians are talking about hypotheticals and our audience, millions of women are experiencing this in real time. Why are we making this harder for women to have families in this country? And I say that. But we shouldn't, period. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, I think government was intended to secure the rights and freedom to the people. It was never meant to be all things to all people. And that's the problem is we need to allow people as much freedom as humanly possible. Government needs to stay out of all of this. And the problem is you look at this one case and my fear is I don't want the entire country to look at this one case and think that they have to make a quick decision on this because you actually should step back and say, wait a minute, look at every single situation if we want to deal with this. What I would advise states is, first of all, make sure that parents are protected so that they know their embryos are going to be protected and they know exactly what's going to happen. You don't want to see parents lose embryos. You do a lot of work to get that. They need to be safe and they need to know that. The second thing is you need to protect the rights of the parents to make the decisions on these embryos. Like these are theirs. And we need to make sure that they have the utmost. That's really all you should be looking at. So does that does that mean on the second part, you know, making the rights on decisions of embryos, even the ones that you don't think that the doctors have determined are not, you know, the the right ones to implant? Are you saying that should be left up to the doctors and the parents? Yes, absolutely. That is not that's my point. It's like when I was going through this, you know, some are viable, some aren't. And then you also know the different circumstances that could happen. The The only thing I care about this is protect those embryos, make sure they're not destroyed, period. That is what parents expect. That's what they hope for. The second thing is that decision on what happens to those embryos has to be in the hands of the parents and the physician. These are very personal conversations. I remember having mine. It's heartbreaking. And I personally saw those as babies. Other people may not see those as babies. Governor Hilly, you're talking about what a personal situation it is. And I think we can both relate. We can all relate to how personal those decisions are. I think the question on millions of in this country and especially in our readers' minds is, if it's so personal, then the courts seem to be deciding how I should what I should be doing with my personal life. And so I think the big question is, what's next? Where does this stop? A lot of people are wondering, is contraception the next thing that's going to be ruled on? And our question to you is, what's next? Where does this stop? You know, what states have to realize is when you put a law in place, if you see something not working, you have to change the law. So, for example, 
Texas put in this pro-life law. I respect that. I appreciate that. But when you have a mom whose baby has died and she's at 20 weeks and she is holding that baby, the fact that she had to leave the state to deal with that should tell Texas, you've got to go back and fix that law. That's the first thing. When you have this situation in Alabama, it's not that the courts decided this. The law said what it said, right? The courts interpret the law. What Alabama now needs to do is go correct the law. Go make sure that a court can't say that. That's the part is states make these laws, not courts. That's the way it's supposed. Courts are just supposed to do things according to the law. Alabama had this really old law from what I understand. So can I can I ask you, if you were president, do you call the governor of Alabama and say, go correct this? I think that you have to leave it up to the people. I'm very big on the people deciding. But it's just like I was in Texas recently and I said to the people of Texas, I think they need to fix that law. I will say to the people in Alabama now publicly, I think you need to go back and look at that law because I think this is having unintended consequences that you don't want to go down that road. So that's the part I'm saying is don't assume a law is final. We can change these things as circumstances change. When that law was in place, you didn't have artificial insemination. You didn't have in vitro. You didn't have fertility issues. Let's go back and look at that and say, okay, for the millions of women who are in these situations, how are you protecting them? How are you protecting the embryos? And how are you making sure this is not translated in any way that does harm? That's and I what just, I, would- I just want to also clarify. It's not just women that are affected by this, but it, it's millions of families. I want that's to why I said parents. Parents have to have a big part in this. It's their embryos. I want to go to a, a different topic, something that you actually mentioned just a few minutes ago about your children. It is pretty much impossible if you are a millennial or a member of Gen Z to buy a home. It's impossible. It is so expensive. It is unaffordable. Your president tomorrow, how do you address that? The first thing we have to do is look at where we, how we got here. When you send millions of dollars in stimulus money out to the country and you expand welfare to where we have 80 million Americans on Medicaid and 42 million Americans on food stamps, what happened? The price of everything went up. Then all of a sudden, you had the feds who went and instead of saying, don't do this, this is going to harm us. They went and lowered interest rates to practically zero. And you had a bunch of people borrow money at zero, and now they have these long-term things. And so the Fed doesn't know how to make this right. The, the circumstances led interest rates to go way up. Through all of COVID and the stimulus, supply chains had a problem. So houses weren't being built fast enough. Interest rates went up. Banks suddenly said they didn't want a loan because of the differences in the interest rates of borrowing versus lending. Everything got out of whack. The best thing to do is to, first of all, get hold of our economy. You do that by clawing back the $100 billion of unspent COVID dollars that are out there. Instead of 87,000 IRS agents going after middle America, go after the hundreds of billions of dollars of COVID fraud. One out of every $7 was spent fraudulently. Government needs to quit borrowing, cut up the credit cards. 8% of our budget is interest. We've got to stop that. 
I will stop the spending, stop the borrowing, eliminate the pet projects, and I'll veto any spending bill that doesn't go back to pre-COVID levels. That will save us trillions. That will bring things back in line. Then we need to cut taxes on the middle class and simplify the brackets so that we open up cash. We also need to make um, small business loans. We need to make small business tax cuts permanent. There are certain things you have to do that will actually open up the economy in a healthy way. So I want to talk about opening up the economy in a healthy way and making sure that people stay and are able to stay in the workforce and be able to save to buy a home one day. One thing that is really taxing on specifically women and, and families is that there is no national paid family leave. Would you support one? I support the child care tax credits. I know that we had those before, but I'll also tell you when Michael and I had our children and we were both working, the cost of childcare then was unbelievable. The cost of childcare now is out of control. Why did that happen? First of all, you saw during COVID, a lot of our child centers shut down. But look at the regulations that are being put on childcare facilities. We want children to be safe. But there's something wrong when you're requiring certain degrees and licenses for caretakers, when you're going and putting more regulations on these child care centers that have nothing to but do, do with But do you think protecting- that's, that's the crux of it, why people can't afford it? Yes, the regulations? because the price of that set all of child care. Ask any child care um, owner, small business owner. The amount of profit they have is so minimal because of what they have to do to abide by regulations for childcare facilities. And this is not things that are keeping children safe. I'm all about those. This is on paperwork. This is on ratios. This is on things that don't affect the safety of children. So I want to keep us moving because we do have limited time. I think everyone, including you, has has talked about the age of your competitors. They, they are old. And to be blunt, there is lots of conversation on both sides about how, especially for years from now, they they can continue to do either one of them this role. You've talked about candidates taking mental competency tests. Would you advocate for a maximum age to be president? There is a minimum. Yes. I mean, I think that that's hugely important because look at the situation we're in. What happens in D.C. is they don't want to give up the power. They don't want to give up the control. The reason I ask for mental competency, Justin, I don't care if they're 50 or not, but Congress has become the most privileged nursing home in the country. These are people making decisions on the future of our economy. These are people making decisions on our national security. But look at the issues we just now talked about. We talked about fertility. We talked about home ownership. We talked about spending and the weights of, of regulations and all. You have two men in their 80s. They don't, they're not dealing with anything related to childcare or fertility or home buying or any of that. That's why we need a new generational leader. We had got to stop with the two 80 year olds. And now that's someone that's going to serve eight years. And think about it in the military, there's a max. It's 65. You look at pilots, there's a max. It's 65. Why are we having? The most important job of the free world be the two candidates that everybody's talking about, be two guys in their 80s. It is unconscionable to me. Given just that, right, like that is is one stark difference from both of them. Why don't you think Trump supporters are backing you? 
Well, I'll tell you, I think that they look at him and they see that he never got an ounce of credit or a moment's peace when he was serving. They feel like he fought the good fight. What I will say is I voted for him twice. I was proud to serve America in his administration. I thought he was the right president at the right time then. I don't think he's the right president at the right time now. And the reason is, if we don't win, none of this matters. <clears throat> and the market poll that came out today, margin of error, we're going to be, we're, we don't know who's going to win, Trump or Biden, but Trump and most of the polls shows he loses. I defeat Joe Biden by 18 points. Now, if you win by 18 points, think about that. That's you go into D.C. with double digits. That's a mandate to get our spending out of back in control and get our economy back on track. That's a mandate to get our kids reading again and go back to the basics in education. It's a mandate to secure our borders. That's a mandate to go and really right the ship when it comes to our country. That's the focus. There will be a female president of the United States. It will either be me or it will be Kamala Harris. That's a fact. Because if Donald Trump wins the nomination, he will lose the general election and we will get a President Kamala Harris for president. To wrap up, I want to ask you a series of quick questions, kind of a bookend lightning round, if you will. We are the scam. Quick answers, one sentence. Who's your running mate? I don't know. I haven't thought about it, but it won't be based on race or gender or anything political. It will be who I can find to be the strongest partner with me because we have a country to save and a lot of work to get done. What is one thing you would do to address concerns around artificial intelligence, AI? Not to be afraid of it, but don't be too lenient with it. I don't want regulations. I don't want a regulatory committee. I think that's a mistake. Instead, put laws in place. A law that says that if you use artificial intelligence to steal someone's identity, that's against the law. If you use artificial intelligence to affect our elections, that breaks the law. If you use artificial intelligence in a military situation where someone is not approving it, that should be against the law. If you use artificial intelligence that affects the health of any human being in a negative way, that should be against the law. Do straight laws on that and then let artificial intelligence do its thing. It can do amazing things. We want to use that in innovation for good and make sure that we avoid any harm. What's the one thing you would do to decrease mass shootings in the U.S.? Deal with the cancer that is mental health. One in three people have a mental health issue. If treated, they can live a perfectly normal life. The problem is we don't have enough mental health centers. We don't have enough mental health therapists. And if you happen to be lucky enough to get one of those, insurance doesn't cover it. We have got to tackle mental health in this country. What's one thing you would do to reduce the effects of man-made climate change? Acknowledge that it's real and make sure that we understand that you have to deal with the transition. Don't go into extremes saying everybody's got to have an electric car by 2033, but go after the real actors. India and China are massive polluters. We need to call them out. We need to hold them accountable. And we need to, instead of demonize our, our producers, Let's partner with them. They have amazing innovations. You can now see nuclear fusion that actually reduces emissions. Let's work with our partners to figure out how to do that so that we can go into dealing with our environment in a way that's, that's practical and acknowledges that climate change is real. Would you veto a federal paid family leave policy? Not if 60 centered. If, if the majority of Congress comes together and says they want to have a paid family leave policy, I would not veto that. No. 
Governor Haley, thank you very much. And uh, we'll be looking out for you this weekend. Well, listen, thank you. And what I will tell you is most women are general election voters. Every woman needs to participate in the primary process. It is hugely important. I will say it again. In a general election, you are given a choice. In a primary, you get to make your choice. Have your voices heard and make your choice. And I hope you'll go to NikkiHaley.com and check us out. One thing we forgot to ask you. We forgot to ask you the question we ask absolutely everyone on the show. Who should we have on next? Oh, fun. Do you political or otherwise? Up to you. I mean, honestly, if you can have Joan Jett on, she is fantastic. The, the, she was an amazing rocker, but she didn't look the way rockers were supposed to look. She didn't act the way rockers were supposed to act. And they completely shunned her in every way whatsoever. And she had true passion and true fight. And when no record label would sign her, she produced her own label, sold the albums out of the back of her car. And that album had eight number one hits on it. If you want someone that will show you that you can defy odds, that you don't have to fit in a box, and that you can make your fate, she is somebody that you will absolutely love. Wasn't expecting that as your answer. So can you introduce us to Joan Jett? I can introduce you to Joan Jett. And I will follow up with you on that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Governor. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for using the power of your voice. Appreciate y'all. God bless you. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise. <laughs>